Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a cloudy and cool autumn afternoon here in the capital is Simon Taborum. Simon is the Managing Director of Tab Refractory, a division of the Pyrotech business, which is the largest global installer of furnace refractory linings in the aluminium industry. Uh, Simon, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. No problem. It's nice to be on. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme as well, Simon. Um, could be a nicer day for it here in the uh, the UK, but um, I imagine that um, it's a lot nicer where you are today. Of course, you're connecting from uh, Saudi Arabia, is that right? I am in Saudi Arabia at the moment. I've, uh, I got out here. I've just finished my quarantine today. Mm. Um, I've come out to relieve one of my managers has actually been here. He's a, uh, a British gentleman. He's actually been stuck here since January. Um, with the border lockdown, mm. so he's not been able to visit his family, and I've been able to come and relieve him. So as soon as I be able to, to get on site tomorrow, he will be able to go on for the first time in in ten months. Goodness gracious me, it's a crazy situation that we found ourselves in, isn't it, with the COVID-19 pandemic this year? And it is appropriate for us to, of course, start from that angle on the show today because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life trying to manage their way through this crisis. Um, For yourself, Simon, of course, um, as the managing director of a business such as yours, to what extent has it actually affected things for you, the COVID situation? It's been a double-edged sword because the first thing that happened was there was a massive up- upsurge in aluminium production for the food containment industry because more people were were eating and drinking at home. And a, a lot of our biggest customers around the world are, are, are food and beverage cans. So people weren't going to the pubs. So there was actually in America at the moment and Europe, there's a 10% shortage in what we call aluminium can stock for making for beer, for you know, sodas, that sort of thing. So our order book is, is through the roof. The biggest problem is because we operate in 30 different countries, it's been getting our, our specialists into those countries. Uh, we had a, a massive project that was due to be done in Mozambique in April, and Mozambique went into lockdown. And we've not been able to start that project. And mm. the, the customers have been struggling because the borders closed. And that we're finding that all around the world. I've, I've had sent some of our guys, um, we've got massive projects in the USA. And again, the, the US have got a rule that they won't allow anybody from a Schengen country into the USA if they've been in a Schengen country for 14 days. So I've been having to send our guys to Mexico for 14 days so they can then enter the USA from Mexico. And it, We've had a project in New Zealand has, has been postponed because of the lockdown. So it, it's been challenging, very challenging um, to get our men around the world and try and serve our customers. And the customers have been struggling because they've not been able to get any specialists in. So, but order-wise, we, 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 we're doing really well. We're, we're sort of recession-proof because when there is a recession, most people sort of start drinking and eating more at home. So the mm. the aluminium can sector 
increases, whereas in other in good times it's the automotive and aerospace um, aluminium production that goes up. So mm. it's just this has been a, a totally unique situation for us. It's certainly good to hear that the business itself, to an extent, is obviously thriving in terms of the order book there, because as you say, you are recession proof in that sense. But um, there is obviously, of course, the um, inevitable disruption that comes from people not being able to travel so freely. However, as long as obviously your customers do ultimately survive these sort of challenging few months, I suppose you anticipate that eventually when COVID-19 itself is not so much of an issue, then you'll be able to, of course, carry on with these projects and there will be essentially a backlog of work then to uh, get on with. So even when we sort of come out of this period of stasis, if we call it that, um, it's still looking quite good for the future um, in that sense, isn't it? Yes, our order book, we're, we're already full up through till May next year with them turning work away and having customers queuing up, basically. Um, but we, our, our engineers are all sort of traveling in what we call a bubble. So they all travel together, they quarantine together, like live and, and work in the same hotels or apartments together, and we try and keep them in a bubble. And to date, we have actually, amazingly, we have not had one COVID case in our in our mm. company, in our division, despite all the travel we've been doing. So touch wood, we can keep that going with the system, with the bubble systems we have in place. And in terms of operating under these new procedures and having to sort of um, really stagger their travel plans, for those um, workers of yours that do end up going abroad and having to go on to uh, sites and attend to uh, customers, how have they sort of found it from sort of a mental health and well-being point of view having to uh, contend with all of that, do you think? Well, in the, in the early stages, men were worried about getting uh, stuck in a, in a border lockdown. Mm. Um, we had a guy, for example, working here in Saudi Arabia in March, and his wife was due to give birth in May, and he was really worried about getting out. And I'll be honest, the British Embassy has been fantastic in getting organising uh, the emergency flight homes, the repatriation flights. So we were able to get our guys out of Saudi uh, due to the brilliant work of the British Embassy in Demam. Um so at first, it was people just worried they were going to get stuck in a lockdown in a country, in a lockdown, not be able to get home. I'm going to say, my guy in Saudi Arabia has been here since January. And I think after that initial shock of, well, we're going to be able to get home, then everyone started worrying about their jobs. Um, mm. And that was the first thing everyone did. And the other thing that was interesting for me, I had some of our people asking, could they go on the government furlough? And that's, we had a full order book, and that was something that I was really surprised that a lot of people actually wanted to be put on the furlough scheme in our UK operations. And I said, look, we've got work for you. You know, we have work in Germany, we've got work in the USA, we've got work in, you know. So that was one thing that I was really surprised and disappointed with, that men, they were basically saying, well, we can get free good money off the government. And I'm like, look, we've got a full order book. We have a duty. We, mm. We're in the food. It's a, we're getting essential service uh, status. Um, so we've been able to get exemptions for traveling to like Iceland and Germany and places like that. So I think at first people were initially then very worried about their jobs. Um, and now they, they're probably earning more money with the travel they've been doing than previous years. So um, the workforce is actually, they come through um, they're happy with the protocols we're doing and, They've been okay. I think they've seen that they can get home from locations. Um, so it's, it's, 
it's been challenging for them, but I think in the end of the day, they're all glad that they're going to have a job through this. And I think that is one of the biggest issues going forward that I think the UK is going to struggle with next mm-hmm. year is there's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot worse than people think, especially in the under-25 bracket for employment. I, I think it's going to be worse than a lot of people expect. Sorry to be a bit mm-hmm. doom and gloom on that, but I do see that it's going to be worse than anyone's imagined and harder to come out of it. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a challenge for business on the uh, the horizon, um, and there will be a lot of people out there that will be finding themselves out of work, but perhaps now have an opportunity more so than ever to actually retrain, upskill, and then move into a new industry. So there's certainly a positive that we can take from that in the sense that maybe in sectors such as the construction industry that maybe have suffered skills shortages down the years, maybe now is a good time to finally account for that. And for those youngsters as well that are out there and maybe sort of disheartened at what it is doing to their employment prospects. So they've got to recognise as well that there are going to be opportunities out there, even when we are sort of coming out of a crisis and sort of staring down the barrel of the aftermath there. There's still going to be something there to do, isn't there? And that's very important. Well, that's one of the things I've seen. I mean, I've been the managing director of the TAB division now since 1997. And one, one of the reasons that we have been so successful is we still have the traditional apprenticeship schemes mm. where someone comes on and does a three or four year proper trade um, in all the different disciplines we do. And other people have, there's been two things that a lot of other companies have not been doing that. And there is a shortage of, of good skilled trades, apprentice trades. Um, and the other one, it, it's not been something, I, and I see this not just in the UK, I saw, I saw it a lot in Australia, I see it a lot in the USA. We've, we've sort of spent a generation telling our children that they've got to, if they don't go and get a degree, they're failures. And we've ended up with a massive shortage in the, in the skilled trades. And you can earn as much money in a skilled trade as you can get with a college degree now because there's such a shortage of skills. And I see it massively in America. I think that's one of the reasons we've been successful is because in America, pretty much, if, if you don't go to college, you, you're deemed to have failed. And it is something we've got to get back to, letting people know that. When I mean, I, I did my apprenticeship in the old steel work, in British Steel. Um, I wanted mm. to just go and do an apprenticeship. And back then, if you did a four-year apprenticeship, it was treated with as much respect as a college degree. And now it's as if, oh, you, you're just being a tradesman. And uh, that's what's this point. We've got to change the attitude because if we don't have people who can build and engineers who, who can train on the job, then we're going to have problems going forward. That's exactly it, isn't it? It's about changing perceptions. And I think now, if we think about it, now is the time for leadership, certainly, to change those perceptions and try and address these long-standing problems. Because even though, of course the effects on unemployment are going to be hugely detrimental during this time. There is no better time, perhaps, to make it a watershed moment and really use this to combat that long-standing problem. Yeah, and it is. I also see it from parents. Parents are not pushing their children to go to trades. We Mm. find a lot of the apprentices we get on now are actually the sons or relatives of people who worked for us 20 years ago and know what a good career they can have and the, the money they can earn doing this sort of, of work. So we, it, we, we used to always say for every four apprentices we, we used to take on maybe 20 years ago, we'd get one really good one. And I, now we'd probably say for every 10 apprentices we take on, we'll probably only end up with one even finishing their four-year course. 
which is is mm. I don't know. They, 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 it's just in young people now. They don't like to, you know, be getting their hands dirty as much. They all want to work on a computer, and it's only the people really who, who have relatives in the industry where you can be earning. I mean, you can be 21, 22 years old and earn 80,000 to 100,000 pounds a year. And there's not many jobs where if you've not got a college degree or you're in some other field that you can earn that sort of money. And you can in, in the service industry, mm. working on site, getting dirty, working with your hands. And we've got to change that perception. And obviously from the point of view of a leader within the uh, the industry, such as yourself, what kind of sort of personality does it take to work in that sector and what are the sort of qualities that you look for in that sort of future generation of um, servicemen? Well, I'm from a fourth generation of, of furnace builders and, you know, it was basically in our our family, um, we, we split two, me and my brother went into the industry. One of my other brothers is a captain for British Airways. He went to university and one of the other ones is a telecom engineer. And so we actually wanted to go into this industry. And I, it's long hours and you're away from home. You can be away from home for sort of two to three months at a time. But you can have a, end up working nine months of the year and, and earning a, a six-figure salary. So it's it, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's hard work, but you, you will get to travel and see the world, you know. Um, say we operate in 30 different countries. Um, the USA was, has been the surprising one. We entered the US, US market about seven, eight years ago. And people just said, you're not going to get a foothold. There's too many entrenched service providers here. And we basically took over the industry. And one of my competitors actually said, the quality of your tradespeople, we said, we've lost them here. He said, we didn't mm-hmm. train anyone for 20 years. And the problem I see, not just within the USA, but I see it in Germany, Australia, New Zealand, not only are we not trained anyone, but the people who have the old skill sets are all retiring off. So mm. we're actually losing the trainers as well as not getting the trainees. And that's why I see more and more we're moving ahead of our competition more and more because we have continuously taken on apprentices for 30 years. And no one else has been doing it. And it's not really been driven. For, for construction and engineering. Mm, it's a huge issue, isn't it? And it is something that hopefully we can address over the uh, the next uh, few months once and for all because it's a well-documented and very long-standing problem. And just thinking about that sort of next few months now, Simon, before we wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time. In an ideal world, I know, of course, we don't have a crystal ball in front of us and it is difficult to look too far ahead given the nature of the uncertain landscape we're in at the moment. But if we could look ahead in 12 months' time, um, ideally, what is it that you're looking to have achieved at your business by this time next year? And where do you really want the business to be? And as well as that, where do you hope the industry heads during this period of time as well, particularly with regards to solving this issue that we've been talking about? Well, I mean, we've grown year on year for the for the past 27 years. Um, and we're probably going to do, amazingly, we'll probably have another record year this year. Um, my biggest concern is being able to move manpower around the world to do this work, depending on um, what's going to happen with the lockdowns in various countries. So, my biggest job at the minute is actually fitting customers in and serving them. So from our side, the order book's not an issue. Uh, having enough people to do the job is. 
And hopefully, like you said, there'll be opportunities where some people will be out of work and realise that getting a, a skill and a, in a trade and an engineering service is going to be a, a good way to go going forward because that's where the shortage is going to be. That's our biggest problem is having good people who are willing to do this work and learn the trade. That is going to be the big thing to try and resolve over the next few months, isn't it? It's all well and good having a lot of people out there that are going to have to reskill and retrain in new sectors out of necessity, but they have to want to go into this particular industry. And industry does have a role to play, doesn't it, in trying to make it enticing and try and change perceptions. It's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of leadership from everybody, isn't it, to really make this happen? Well, we've also... We've continued to grow, even though it's been a decline in the UK aluminium industry production. Um, we've saw it's gone the way like steel. There used to be 12 or 13 large aluminium plants, and I think there's basically three now. But because we went global, we've been able to keep everyone in full, good employment. But it just means we've got to travel further and further afield, which the world was, the world was a lot smaller place back in March, and it was easy, it's quite easy to do. It's, and the COVID has just put a a big dint in us on that. It's had a bit of an interesting effect, the pandemic, hasn't it? Because it's made the world a much smaller, well, a much bigger place rather when it comes to actually physically being able to travel to places. But it's made it a much smaller place in terms of being able to connect technologically. But I suppose when you actually have to go out there and do the field work, that isn't really any sort of solace. So it's going to be a very important few months just to see how things continue with global restrictions. And I think, Simon, just... Just given as well um, the amount of variables that there still are in this whole situation and just how um, intriguing and enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, I think it would be wonderful to catch up in future once we get a better idea of what the landscape is starting to look like and have you back on the show just to see what's going on, assess what's changed in the time between our discussions and we can also see just how things at Tab Refractory are actually getting on. Absolutely, sir. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on our show today. It's been a real, real pleasure having you on to talk about your views. And most importantly, Simon, until we do hopefully get to speak again, do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. And that goes for everybody associated with the business as well. I appreciate that, Scott. Thanks very much for having me on. Appreciate it. And coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Now, our next guest, Lord Blunkett, enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His political exploits saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. Remember, everybody tuning into the podcast today, do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. The interview with Lord Blunkett will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of 
experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape 
that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June 
this obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.